So last time uh, we were able to actually look at the confession because it feels like it's been forever. But um, last time we actually looked at the confession, what we were going over was uh, God's sovereignty over the sin of his elect. So now we're going to move to his sovereignty over the sin of the reprobate. Um, speaking of the corresponding passage in the Westminster Confession, R.C. Sproul rightly says of this section that it, quote, may be the hardest and most controversial section in the Confession, end quote. So uh, I very much agree with that statement. This probably is the hardest, uh, most difficult one. Um, but I will say I think it's biblical. I think it's right. So we'll go ahead and look at section 6 in chapter 5. Also, we're going to look at section 7, hopefully, if we can get that far tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and read it as well um, in the hopes that we'll get through the end of the chapter tonight. But picking up in uh, section 6, it says, God as the righteous judge sometimes uh, blinds and hardens wicked and ungodly people because of their sins. He withholds his grace from them by which they could have been enlightened in their understanding and had their hearts renewed. Not only that, but sometimes he also takes away the gifts they already had and exposes them to situations that their corrupt natures turn into opportunities for sin. Moreover, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften others. <clears throat> so... It starts off, God as the righteous judge. Now I keep uh, emphasizing that this keeps reappearing in each one of these paragraphs, some sort of mention that God is righteous in what he's doing. Um, so once again, as is customary, the framers of the confession are careful to maintain that God is a righteous judge and that all that follows is indeed his dealings, uh, is indeed uh, righteous in his dealings with his sinful creatures. Um, but God as the righteous judge sometimes blinds and hardens wicked and ungodly people because of their sin. So there's a reason he's doing this. It's not just arbitrary. Um, the people whom God is interacting with in this section are not poor, innocent people, and God comes along and makes them sin. Um, I think we've already pretty well covered God does not create fresh evil in the heart of the reprobate uh, or any sinner for that matter they're already sinners and their hearts are naturally inclined to evil so as righteous judgment against such people God further hardens and blinds them so we're going to start um, <clears throat> that's the Romans 1 passage where it pushes them all yeah, we're actually going to look at that passage. You're right. Um, that's going to be our second passage. Our first passage, we're going to look at Isaiah 6. And this will be uh, verses 8 through 13. So... Isaiah is having his vision of the Lord and um, he's made the comment about being uh, undone and 
his mouth is cleansed with the hot coal. And so now that's where we're at. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So we see there that Isaiah's ministry was one of hardening. Um, you know, we've just come out of Micah as well. Um, uh, his ministry is at the same time as Isaiah, and I think a lot of these minor prophets that were uh, going over, not just them, but uh, in large measure, I think their ministry was one of hardening because there were people that would repent, but as a whole, the nation did not repent. And so um, the judgments that were spoken eventually came. Um, and the people's response was not, oh, we should repent. It was, oh, let's double down. Um, you know, with some variation, you would have a good king that might come along and there would be a short time of repentance, but then it would go back to, like, it would go even further. The pendulum would swing back further than it was before. So um, so that's Isaiah uh, with a ministry of hardening. Um, now, the uh, passage that Ken was mentioning, Romans 1, <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to just go ahead and read verses 18 through 32, but uh, put special attention on verses 24 through 28 because we're looking at this concept of uh, people who are already sinners and God's judgment is to further harden them. Okay? All right, picking up in uh, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, so we've established they are sinners, and sinners of the worst kind, idolaters. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. <clears throat> Sproul comments uh, on another passage, but I think it goes well with this passage. Uh, he says, When abandoning people, God abandons them to themselves. Far from taking away their free will, He delivers them over to their free will by which they choose to do the evil desires of their hearts. So this is not, this hardening that God does, it's not a, um, we were talking about several, several weeks ago now, it's not a positive action, but rather an abandoning. So the sin that is there to begin with is our fault, and the further sin is our fault, even though it is also correct to say God took away that whatever grace was restraining um, so that's that passage. Um, the next one is Romans 11, um, 7 through 10. <clears throat> so Romans 11, 7 through 10. And then, um, We'll read that first. All right. It says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So God gave them this. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. All right? <clears throat> so you see that this is from God, but the purpose is then revealed in verses 11 through 15. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I think that's pretty spectacular. So their hardening, first of all, that causes us to come in, the Gentiles to come in. But then their later 
you want to say re-inclusion or inclusion, is even better. So their hardening serves God's purpose. I think it's fair to say there's probably multiple purposes, but at least in this passage the purpose is the engrafting of the Gentiles. All right, and then one final passage on this, uh, Revelation 22, 11. This is uh, the Lord is speaking to John. He says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. But you see there, God has a purpose in that evildoer still doing evil and that filthy one still being filthy. It's not that he approves of such, but he does have his own purposes for this. All right. Uh, any Thoughts, comments, or anything before we move on? I think it's interesting to point out that that passage in Romans 11, even though it's talking about the nation as a whole not obtaining, in their hardening and disbelief, many of them went to hell. So all all of them were not Israel. So even there it shows that in disbelief and eternal punishment, there is purpose, and God still brings many to glory through even, even though it took the hardening and putting away of Israel, so to speak. And then later they get to be brought back. But I just think it's hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around this, anyways, because it's hard for us to see that there could be any purpose in a concept or a place like hell or unbelief. But yet there is, you know, and um, and we can't explain it, and, and uh, I don't think it gives us the right to sit around and assume that if people aren't doing what we think they should be doing, then they're obviously God's withdrew His mercy and grace, and they're never going to be saved. I think it, oh. push, it pushes us for more to say, "I'm going to keep trusting that God's going to save you no matter what." Because all that's, we can't see that hardening and taking away. Right. It's, kinda, it's hidden from us. And I think people get mad at that and say, well, I don't want to serve God like that if he's picking these and not picking those. But in his eternal purpose, and like you said, in his goodness and righteousness, or however this started out, the righteousness of God, mm-hmm. all this is accomplishing those purposes that we get to enjoy and that we're thankful for we keep we look forward to but even though we don't know how I don't know if you're and it, ha- and it has purpose that's the thing it's yeah. not an arbitrary thing where he goes okay well how about I just pick you and then you you can go to hell yes. it's it's not like that at all no. um, there's purpose behind uh, election and reprobation yes um, so yeah alright um, well this uh, the confession then continues um It says, He withholds His grace from them, that is the reprobate, by which they could have been enlightened in their understanding and had their hearts renewed. And I kind of made an allusion to that already, um, that He's not creating fresh evil in their hearts when this happens. It's more that He's withholding grace from them 
Because again, remember, grace is not owed. If it's owed, it's not grace. Um, you don't describe your boss as gracious when he pays you your wages, right? He owes you that. Um, it may be gracious if he pays you extra that he didn't have to, but just paying you your normal wages is not being gracious, that, that kind of thing. All right, uh, on this passage, though, or uh, this <coughs> sentence, I guess, let's look at Deuteronomy 29. Uh, start there. And uh, we'll look at verses 2 through 4 here. And again, we're looking at the nation of Israel um, as a whole here, just like we were in Romans 11. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. So they had seen all the miracles and the great deliverance that God had given and sustained them in the wilderness because we're getting really close right here to um, taking the promised land. We're not quite there, but we're almost there. Uh, But then he says, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So Moses understood to have a heart to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear. That had to come from God. That wasn't something conjured up from within. That was something given by God. Um, all right. Next passage is Matthew 13. looking at verses uh, 10 through 17. Now this is following the uh, parable of the sower. So that's the uh, context. Jesus has just given a parable. Um, What parable is really not the point. The point is that it was a parable. Alright, so picking up in verse 10, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, why do you speak to them the crowds, in parables. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So God has revealed it. It was God's purpose that these things would be revealed to them. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
So the point there is he enlightens some, but by the same means, the exact same means, he darkens others. So it was given to the disciples, and I would say now to us, uh, it is given to understand the parables, to the reprobate, which again, I agree with Jason, we don't know God's decree of election uh, other than it exists. So we don't know who's elect and who's reprobate. But he does. So the reprobate parable is to darken them. All right. Uh, and then one more on this one just real quick. Just one verse. It's Romans nine eighteen, And I think we've been in Romans 9 so much that I'm. that's why I'm only going to read the one verse instead of going back over it yet again. Um, but Romans 9, 18... <clears throat> It says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So he gives grace to those whom he wills, and he withholds grace from whom he wills. He enlightens whom he wills, and he darkens whom he wills. All right. Any uh, any thoughts or comments or anything on that all right well then the confession then continues on and it says not only that but sometimes he also takes away the gifts they already had and exposes them to situations that their corrupt natures turn into opportunities for sin uh, now, one of the passages I had, we just read it, was in Matthew 13, 12, which essentially said the one who has more will be given. The one who uh, does not have what he does have will be taken away. So we just read that one. Uh, that goes along with it. I think that one's actually cited in the confession. Um, also, let's look at Deuteronomy 2, 30. <clears throat> Just this one verse, Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. It says, But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, the nation of Israel. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So God hardened his heart, but for a purpose. It wasn't I just think I'll harden his heart today. It was, he hardened his heart that he might give him into your hand. So he was working this man's sin to his elect's good. And ultimately always his glory. All right, uh, another passage, 2 Kings uh, chapter 8. And uh, this will be verses 7 through 15. 
I said 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. All right, it says, Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. So he's telling him to tell Ben-Hadad that he will recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. So that's kind of perplexing on the face of it. Tell him he's going to get better but he's not. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, What is your servant who is but a dead dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died and Haziel became king in his place. So Haziel receives this true prophecy from Elisha and then murders his lord. So God did not make him commit murder, but God did put him in the situation where Um, His corrupt nature had an opportunity for further sin. And he went headlong in there, didn't he? Um, All right. And then one final passage on this. Matthew 25. And uh, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. All right. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, uh, or to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the slothful servant is put into a situation where his sinful nature then does what it does. And so he sins all the more. All right, any, uh, any thoughts or comments or anything like that? All right, the confession goes on to say, Moreover, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften others. And I kind of alluded to this already as well. This will be, we'll start off in Psalm 81. Uh, looking at verses 11 and 12. So Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. So up to this point, we've been reading about um, Israel needing a new heart and God hardening Israel for a time. Kind of continuing on with that theme here. Uh, It says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. That's hardening. Um, Alright. Another passage. 1 Kings this time. uh, Chapter 22. And this one will be a little bit longer, um, so just bear with me. First Kings 22. All right, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 28. 
Um, and then I'll skip down to verse 34. All right. It says, For three years Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And so he's got 400 prophets of Yahweh here, supposedly. And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? I think that that particular verse is fascinating because they just had 400 so uh, supposed prophets of Yahweh tell them to go up and Jehoshaphat is still not satisfied. I think him being a righteous king, he knew something was awry here. Um, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, I think is how you say that, made for himself horns of iron and said thus says the lord with these you shall push the syrians until they are destroyed and all the prophets prophesied so and said go up to ramoth gilead and triumph the lord will give it into the hand of the king and the messenger who went to summon micaiah said to him behold the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. So they're telling Micaiah beforehand, well, I mean, go with the grain. There's 400 prophets that's already saying this is going to go well. Just, you know, fall in line. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. He's being sarcastic. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? 
And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, maybe, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So, the point of me using this passage is to show Ahab already had certain desires. He wanted a predetermined outcome, a predetermined prophecy, um, if you want to say it that way. Uh, he wanted them to say what he wanted them to say, not what God would say. Somehow, I guess, he thought maybe if they said it, it would come to pass, whether the Lord had given it or not. I don't know. But um, We have 400 of these prophets that give this prophecy, oh, yes, go up, you're going to win. And this one guy, he just can't get past. And it's this one guy who's actually speaking from the Lord. Um, so I think that this is a really good example of he gives them over to their own lust, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften others. The word of God softens the heart of God's people, but it hardens people like an Ahab. So if you skip down to verses 34 through 37, you'll see Micaiah was actually speaking from the Lord. It says, But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. But God's purpose was accomplished through these lying prophets. All right, uh, another one, John chapter 6. And this will be verses 60 through 71. So John chapter 6. Verses 60 through 71. <clears throat> All right. So John 6, 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So that's the means there. The words that God has spoken, they are spirit and life, but insert in there, to the elect. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So think of all the things that the twelve had heard and witnessed which served to soften their hearts. They heard the gospel proclaimed. They saw the miracles. Um, they saw, really, they saw Christ's heart. Um, they lived with him for this earthly ministry he had. Yet, the hearts of the majority of these disciples here were hardened, as well as the heart of the devil among them, Judas Iscariot. The same thing that served to soften the heart of a Peter was the same thing that further hardened the heart of a Judas. All right. Um, let me see where we are on time. Yeah, I think we'll just finish up right here. Uh, these We've got four more passages on this, and I think we'll just stop with section six tonight, looking at what time it is, and we'll try to get section seven next week. All right, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2. Verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So that's what we're looking at. Those who are perishing, why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So that's their condition. As a result, God sends these people who already refuse to love the truth and to be saved, He sends those people a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. Why do they believe what's false? Well, God sent it, yes, but they also believe what's false because they want to believe what's false. So that's the thing to understand. God's not making them do this. 
They want to believe this. It was the same thing as it was with Ahab. All right, uh, Exodus 8.15. All right, Exodus 8.15 says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, so there is uh, this plague of frogs, the the plague of the frogs is now over with and done with. God has stopped it. So Pharaoh sees there's light at the end of the tunnel, basically. Uh, When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other places it says God hardened his heart. Well, same thing. That's why we believe in the doctrine of concurrence. Um, Alright. 1 Corinthians 1. Verses 21 through 24. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, so the preaching of the gospel saves those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the same gospel message, stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Greeks, but saves those um, who believe, who are the called. And then final passage for tonight, uh, 1 Peter 2. And then this will be verses 7 and 8. It says, So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See the same thing. This is the same means. For some it is salvation. For some it is their damnation. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So there you see that this is God's in control of all of this. Okay? Alright, um, any comments, concerns, objections, or any of that nature? Everybody's good. Okay. If everybody's good, then I'll go ahead and dismiss us with a prayer, okay? Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are thankful that it is clear, even though sometimes it is hard. Um, This truly is a very difficult topic to discuss, uh, one that maybe offends our uh, natural inclinations, but Lord, 
we know that it is clearly revealed in your word as we've just seen. And we pray that you would help us to hold fast to what you've revealed to us, even if we may not completely understand it. Um, we do know that you are the righteous judge of all creation. And help us to trust in your goodness and help us to seek the salvation of the lost. We don't know who the reprobate are. We don't know who the elect are. You've just given us the command to go and preach the gospel to the nations, and so help us to be faithful in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.